Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the New Zealand Independent Politics and Media Podcast. This Sunday morning, uh, I am joined by Josephine to co-host. Welcome along, Josephine. Kia ora. Thank you. Really, um, yeah, actually a lot happened this week um, and a lot more kind of focus on specific politics in, in New Zealand that mm-hmm. we don't yeah. usually see. And it all kind of um, triggered by this, the use of the term by, by Luxon, by Christopher Luxon, uh, leader of the National Party earlier in the week, referring to just broadly uh, people on benefits as bottom feeders. Mm. What was your take on that when you initially kind of heard he'd used that language, Josephine? Yeah, that was this was one of the uh, big news uh, this week. Um, again, you know, we're coming closer to the next um, election campaign sort of a mode, and we're hearing these sorts of, um, you know, um, positionings uh, from uh, the leaders. So when I first heard that, I actually was not at all surprised. Um, I did not really expect anything you know, more from the National Party. In fact, we very well know that the sort of ideology that underpins the National Party, um, you know, it's neoliberalism, which which uh, basically talks about trickle-down theory and, you know, individualism. And under such an ideological uh, perspective about uh, economy and society, um, this is the kind of view that you get about poor people under such a worldview. Um, so I wasn't surprised at all. And uh, and this is reflected in how they have treated poor people in New Zealand in their policies. And But the other side of this is also, um, although rhetorically labor, you know, are, are, are different, I do not think that the Labour Party has proven with its uh, six years now, nearly six years in office, um, that they are different. Um, you know, it comes down to how, which, you know, are, is Labour actually upholding the dignity of poor people in New Zealand? That's the question, right? So um, if you look at the Welfare Expert Advisory Group recommendations, um, which was basically instituted uh, by the Labour government, this committee to study um, the conditions of poor people, and a vast majority of, of those recommendations were ignored by the current government. So although they're not making these rhetorical statements, um, effectively, when it comes to upholding the, the dignity of poor people, their policies have failed. So that is the other side of this debate. Um, so yes, you know, it's, it was, it's not surprising. This is how National Party actually looks at and understands poverty, right? Um, it's through the lens of individualism and neoliberalism. Um, but at the same time, neoliberalism is the, you know, the larger underpinning um, ideology of economic ideology of the Labour Party since when? Since, uh, you know? <laughs> since the 1980s. <laughs> yeah. I, I so, think you're absolutely right. Um, and you know, people often say, you know, labor is national with kindness um, in a lot of respects. And although there are some uh, movements in a more positive direction that, that come out of the Labor Party sometimes, yeah. in general, the operating manual is, is the same. 
and it was, I think one of the really interesting things about that whole, um, the whole narrative around that is you didn't see many labor people actively pushing back on it, like in the party, you didn't mm. see labor come out and condemn, uh, Christopher Luxon for his statements uh, because what are they going to say? They're going to say, oh, yeah, we actually think the same. Um, and that's why we're only giving $20 in April uh, to, to beneficiaries to try and top up this woefully, uh, woefully under, underfunded uh, mm-hmm. social welfare mechanism. Um, yes. And yeah, I wouldn't want to be drawn into a conversation about that either because the flip side of what Luxon was saying, he did this whole comparison between we don't want to focus on the bottom. He actually said that as well, not on the bottom, not on bottom feeders, um, you know, which is, you know, that's pretty interesting to try and draw those two terms together and, and pretty um, revealing. Mm-hmm. But he can, he can contrast that with go-getters and ambitious people who are like trying to like do the best as if, as if those are distinct somehow. Um, yeah. And if Labour had tried, you know, to, say, oh, no, you can't talk about poor people like that. Um, I mean, that leaves them in a, in a pretty awkward policy position. Yeah, and the thing is, like, you know, as the election nears, I expect a bit of Benny bashing from um, the <laughs> national. So this happens time and again, even in my time in New Zealand, which is like since... Um, uh, John Key's 2014 um, government, like since 2015, I've been sort of, you know, observing New Zealand politics and I've seen it happening. And so, you know, and effectively, if you think about um, who um, Luxon is, he is a, you know, a cheesy CEO. <laughs> what do you, what more do you expect from, you know, a person with such a background? Uh, that's the sort of worldview that um, he comes from. But when John Campbell pressed him, um, I saw that he sort of uh, went back a little bit on on that, and he started saying that, yeah, you know, we are we have to do something about intergenerational poverty. Um, so yes, even when when pressed, when when pressed, there is re- even the rhetorical dif- difference between a national and labor sort of, um, I think. Um, gray out a little bit so yeah and and for me and as leftists what what we need to think about in these in these sorts of uh, debates is analyzing what the policies of these governments or or these two parties represent for poor people that is the most important thing over the rhetoric and we need to be holding to account people who claim to represent the interests of uh, poor people and are not doing it all the while we also critique um, this very um, decontextualized analysis of uh, poverty uh, that the national party uh, by and large represents. I think the most surprising thing for me is that, you know, his minders or his, you know, his communications advisors hadn't told him not to use this language that they're, and, you know, the, probably what happened is he was told to use this language. He was told to give these early signals uh, around what national stood for. Um, Some of that might actually be pulled back as we move into a proper election campaign. I'm expecting them to go for a compassionate conservative 
um, mm, campaign and, and use framing more like that. Mm. Um, and so as many, if they can create a, a few echoes earlier on, like, ah, we know that they're actually on our side, um, even if they are using this language later on about, you know, intergenerational poverty and like um, kind of helping the little guy get ahead. All the CEOs and, um, you know, other business um, lobbyists can still look back at this comment and say, okay, they, they are on our side. Um, they are going to continue with, with similar policies, even if the language around that changes. Yeah, and the thing, uh, the like you said, the difficult thing for Labour Party is, is with their last, you know, uh, five years or so, um, it's become difficult for them to really draw distinction, uh, dis, you know, um, from distinction from the uh, National Party. Uh, another example I was thinking about was how, um, you know, Jacinda Ardern's response to um, Luxon's at the tax um, cut sort of speak when he was talking about tax cuts, income tax cuts. Um, Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister said um, she's concerned that this was going to benefit uh, uh, the wealthiest or the top income. But then, you know, it sort of ring, rings hollow. Uh, people are not able to make the dis that sort of a, um, a distinction between labor and, and national because um, I remember distinctly how how uh, the Labour Party just dismissed uh, uh, the suggestion of a wealth tax. The very, yeah. the concept was not even entertained by the Labour Party. So if the Labour Party were really interested in, um, you know, uh, in inequality and, and um, sort of reducing the gap and uh, reducing misery and poverty in New Zealand, um, they, they would have been open to, much more progressive policies, which they haven't been. So although Luxon is making these signals again and again, I feel like Labour has, you know, uh, failed to be in a position to uh, to uh, show that they're distinct and they are completely in opposition to, yeah. uh, to national. And I think that's something that often gets lost. And I wish there's a bit more pushback from the media when they're interrogating our, our politicians. Mm. Is the outcome actually matters? Um, you know, we can't all, it can't always just be a perception based politics where, uh, you know, the spokespeople for these parties can just say shit uh, and 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 get challenged on what they're saying, but not challenged on what the outcomes of their policies um, or their actions while in government are. Yes. And you'll see I, both Labour and National absolutely. Uh, tripping over themselves to talk about uh, nine long years or six long years now for, for labor um, of, mm. of little change. Um, but they, you can't level those questions against them because they'll just reject them uh, prima facie. Like they, <laughs> they, they won't hear it. Uh, yeah. They'll just say, oh, but it's so hard. Oh, it's, it actually takes a long time and a lot of money. Uh, so we can't. Okay, cool. But, same for national, apparently. Um, you can't just keep making those excuses while saying, uh, we're, we're looking after the poorest and we're looking after teachers, we're looking after nurses. No, you're fucking not. Like yeah. the, the outcomes on the ground, what is occurring in our society is a material reject, rejection of that. Yeah, and it's also like, it's very good that you, you know, brought up 
how the media is not really holding to account um, both major parties. And a good example of that is that, you know, the research that's being done, uh, including the findings by, um, uh, you know, Bernard Hickey, who said um, the Labour Party, uh, he, he used the words, and I quote, accidentally on purpose, uh, <laughs> you know, presided over the biggest transfer of wealth from renters to asset owners mm -hmm. in New Zealand's history. And it's like, over 900 billion dollars so and at this during the same period um the poorest people in new zealand went further into debt 300 million further into debt with the government itself so these are the sort of um you know impacts that labor's policies have had on the poorest and also you know i think this can segue into the next section um one of the other points that we were going to talk about is, um, you know, all the restrictions being taken up, um, uh, lifted. And for me, this is really interesting because this was part of um, Labour's uh, brand and image. It was the COVID response and, mm -hmm. and that, you know, uh, keeping it zero and keeping the, uh, the people safe. So there's a market move, you know, move away from it. I'm really interested to see what uh, the Labour government is going to pivot on um as as their you know policy yeah the um, new thing for the next for the next yeah. election now that you know the restrictions have gone and all those yeah key things have gone yeah. because that's what people have been saying right uh for the last uh, maybe 12 months um since since delta um and this kind of lack of activity from labor uh, other than for the covid response they said, oh, Labour, it looks like Labour are going to try and fight 2023 on their COVID response again. But that's looking less and less the case. It's looking like they're going, like you said, something, they're going to have to come up with something new uh, that yeah. they're taking to the New Zealand public, which I'm I'm happy with. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad they're, they feel like they're forced to do that. Um, I'm not, I'm not super sold <laughs> on, mm -hmm. on the, the changing of public health measures. Um, yeah. I was having a chat about this this morning, um, and there are a couple of things. You know, I, I think here on one or two hundred, we've been really strong advocates for the public health response, um, yeah. both in yeah. terms of you know some of the more unpopular stuff from Labour, as well as trying to push them further on it. But mm. for me, the the things that they have lifted, are, I don't think they matter that much. I think they are more of an indication uh, they're more optical than they are efficacious um so the main changes that happened this week for for people who um, are following along in, in other countries uh some of the mandates are, are being dropped except for very frontline people like border staff um, and nurses so it's just a, a standard vaccine mandate uh situation where if you don't have uh the vaccination uh, you can't work in the industry. Uh, so some of those are being lifted. Um, some of the numbers allowed in indoor venues have been raised and they are getting rid of QR code scanning, or at least they're saying it's not, that's not mandated either. You don't have to have a QR code up. And to me, those things don't really do too much. Um, the, the mandates, it turns out, and this was actually, this was pretty big news. It turns yeah. out the mandates, the, the government, I don't know if they let slip or they were just like happy to talk about it now, um, were being used to push up vaccination rates. Um, 
more than they were being used to restrict access. Mm. Um, they, they didn't see it necessarily as a way to decrease spread of the virus. They saw it as a way to... Uh, Protect uh, the health system, maybe? Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, or, you know, get uh, more people saying, oh, I should do that so I can go to a cafe. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, by and large, that's worked. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily something uh, with our incredibly high vaccination rates that that needs to continue. Um, and, you know, there are arguments for and against that, but I don't think the impact of that is going to necessarily be what we think. You know, our Omicron cases are already pretty high. Um, the increase in venue numbers, uh, it's going from 100 to 200. That's such a, it's such an edge case. Like, and people's own risk tolerance is going to stop anyone going to a 200 yeah. packed venue anyway. Um, again, not something which is going to have much of an impact, I don't think. Um, and the QR code scanning, um, they've already removed locations of interest. This is just the final step of that. Like, you can't protect yourself using QR code scanning anyway. If you've got Bluetooth tracing on, I think Andrew Chen was saying um, earlier in the week, uh, please keep the app because it is at, at least tracking, you know, infection movement, um, even, and scan as well if you, if you choose to. Um, that all helps. Uh, but in terms of our individual protections, I don't think QR code scanning is doing too much anymore. What, what have you been your takes on some of these changes? Oh, yeah. Um, for me, it was the mandate um, being lifted. I think it was actually the right thing to do. Uh, mm -hmm. And the reason I think that is I, I thought the mandates were uh, for the purpose of bringing up the vaccination rate. And I think it has achieved, achieved that. So such a high rate of vaccination in New Zealand and um, and so yeah I think it is time that you know once we get that that level uh, it doesn't really need to continue and so yeah and and it was clear in the beginning that it's not going to last forever um, yeah so uh, by and large um, the government's sort of health response to COVID has sort of uh, borne fruit, I feel. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really um, nothing more for me to add there. Uh, but what I'm really looking at right now is I'm interested to see what Labour's game plan is going to be yeah. for the next election. Now that this, which was her, you know, keystone sort of policy um, during the 2020 election um, has, that's been, that's out of the picture now. What is Labour's game plan going to be? That is what I'm interested in um, to look forward to here up from here. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think we really know what it's going to be yet. Um, and my critique of Labour's um, health response to, new, to uh, COVID was only in relation to the double, you know, the, um, the double standards that um, New Zealand government had in, in that, you know, they had a mandate in New Zealand. But at the same time, they were not supporting global efforts to share yeah. vaccines globally so that other people could have and other parts of the world could have access. And, and I think these are interlinked, you know. So this was my biggest critique of the New Zealand government's response is that the domestic um, health response was great, you know. You were following the, um, the best medical advice and so forth, making uh, vaccines publicly available, which is how healthcare should be, not just vaccines, all healthcare, yeah. uh, GP visits, dental, uh, eyesight, hearing, all these things should be accessible to all New Zealanders. So that's what I think um, 
uh, about that health response. It was it was a universal health report, and um, aspects of um, it being you know socialist in nature continue. We can still go and get rat tests for free, right? Mm-hmm. So, so those things are really good. But the problem is New Zealand hasn't um, reproduced that um, those values in its uh, in its position on 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 COVID globally. Yeah. Uh, at the WTO, it didn't, uh, New Zealand didn't uh, show up for South Africa, even though in New Zealand, uh, you know, uh, Prime Minister made a joint statement with the with the South African president that she would support vaccine equity. Um, eventually, New Zealand um, just abstained and yeah. hasn't yet supported. So that was my main critique of, of uh, the... Yeah, and yeah. I want to pivot that... Um after some final points right? so audience <laughs> keep, no 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 uh, keep, keep in mind that um the way that we act on the um, international stage there but i just want to say some final things about the public health measures um yeah mm-hmm. because there are, there are two things which are have been are worrying to me um with with some of those coming to an end uh the first is the somehow in, incoherent way in which one, um, a lot of anti-mandate uh, protesters and groups and business people are saying that they put pressure on the government and, and they've been successful here, um, which I just don't think was the case at all. But the government could have been a lot clearer around when the sunset uh, clause was for the mandates. They could have said, okay, once we hit 98%, we'll, we'll work at bringing it off. Um, cool, great. Uh, and that would have got ahead of some of that. The government needs to do a better job of being transparent about what its plans for the future are and just saying, oh, it's a changing situation isn't good enough. Just update it every two months or something and just say, okay, this is what we're going to do unless X happens. You know, that's pretty easy to do. Um, And it stops all the conspiracy theorists and like um, kind of rabid uh, anti-health measure individualists from being able to, to claim a victory here. Secondly, the media like just platforming all of these people with these really sunny um, profiles of them, maybe like two or three a day, like, oh, this poor, like, um, friendly hippie who was at the protest who's now happy that the bandits are lifting and it's all on their back. Like, give us a give us a break. We, we don't need that amount of coverage of this group of people, especially when often what they're saying is immediately disprovable. And we're seeing, we're watching the journalist or reporter just choosing not to push back at all the second major thing for me was okay cool we can end some of these public health restrictions but that absolutely has to come with better support for people who are impacted by that and you know you can get direct monetary support for example to people who are uh, on benefits or disabled that are unable now and so in in many respects you know, who sometimes can't be vaccinated because they're severely immune compromised to help them um, weather this next period. Mm. The other thing you could do is support a bit of ventilation and masking equity. Mm. We know that ventilation has been a major issue in schools. The government is giving nothing. We know that it's spreading in schools. Um, you know, a lot of cases are coming out um, of schools oh, and, yeah. and parents, teachers, like, children. Yeah. Yeah, that's where, that's where some of the cases are. Kids, yeah, all my friends have kids are getting the virus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And all you know, every other country in the Western world 
has just put air filters into their classrooms. Why Why can't we do that as a government? Why are we waiting till maybe July to get full coverage? Oh, yeah. And a, a big part of my critique was also what was the government doing? Why didn't we invest into a public health system during the last two years and increase our capacity? Um, we are in the middle of a pandemic and that was overlooked. We could have been expanding our capacity to address this um, quite significantly during this period. Um, but, you know, how many ICU beds do we have left at the moment in the, in the country? There were some shocking numbers last week. Um, like at one stage it was less than 100 and then it, yeah. I heard at one stage it was four. Um, I don't know what the exact figure is right now, but it's really um, concerning. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and alongside that, you know, people in, in New Zealand are talking about, oh, we're over the peak now, it's going to get better. That doesn't play out anywhere else in the world. You know, <laughs> that everywhere else in the world. And maybe some of these places have like slightly less vaccine rates than us. I'm thinking like the UK, Australia. Mm -hmm. um, but they still have pretty good vaccine rates. They're having like second, third, fourth Omicron waves where their cases per day are higher. And both of those health systems are more robust than ours. I'm really worried that unless there's more um, done to both stop the spread via mitigation uh, with ventilation and, and masking equity, um, we're going to see, you know, a second peak, a second wave uh, come during winter, which would be horrific. Um, and two, if we, if we don't at some point very, very soon, like start funding the health system better. Yeah. Like nurses and, and health workers and doctors, they are they are cooked, man. Like yeah. it is a it is a bad situation. Oh yeah. Um and you know, we we started to see again, you know, and, and we're seeing these when it wasn't really the case, um during earlier outbreaks um with elective surgeries. They really are not being able to happen right now because there are no beds. Um, previously, we talked about the risk of that. It is actually happening right now, and we're doing less about it. Um, yeah. yeah, so those are my concerns um, with the changes. But the, the actual changes themselves, I don't think, uh, have an impact. It's what the government isn't doing that has an impact. Yeah, and it was like with the kind of, um, you know, sort of promises that... Um, the sort of ardent leadership made at the beginning of um, her prime ministership or during the campaign in 2017, even though it was a very short one, um, the promises of transformation, the pandemic could have been a portal for the transformation to mm -hmm. speak, you know, put, um, to quote Arunthati Roy, you know, the pandemic could be a portal to a better world. And um, for an honest or, a, you know, a committed uh, government uh, to the well-being of the public, um, we could have been advocates for the people's vaccine globally. We could have been um, using this opportunity to universalize healthcare, um, to say, hey, this pandemic shows how important um, health is. And I was looking at, um, you know, the vulnerability sort of studies of New Zealand population, and it's, it breaks 
it breaks my heart to see that um, you know uh, Maori, younger Maori, are considered to be more vulnerable because of multi-dimensional poverty. Um, younger Pacific Islanders are considered to be more more vulnerable to the worst effects of this um, of Omicron. So, uh, and the you know if you look at the age bracket that's considered more vulnerable for um, non-Maori and Pacifica populations in New Zealand, it's it's much older um, populations that are considered vulnerable. So the impacts of colonization, of capitalism, of, of, um, of exclusion, social and economic exclusion of people are quite evident um, through this pandemic. And, um, you know, a transformative government could have actually transformed um, our health landscape. And, you know, they fell, they fell short of it. Instead, they focused on uh, bailing out uh, the corporations um, in their economic response to COVID. So that shows their ideological leaning or orientation. And it's, um, to me, it's not distinct from um, enough from national for them to be actually doing well in polls. When I saw the polls of a couple of weeks ago, I wasn't surprised because yeah. the, it's it's difficult to distinguish between the orientation of a Labour government and a national government. And unfortunately, the Greens, you know, have by becoming part of the government, I think they have, you know, weakened their position and weakened their ability to distinguish themselves as a, as a real progressive left-wing party. So anyway, um, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> Let's come back around to that, um, you know, the, the failure of New Zealand to push for a people's action on the international stage, because that's becoming a bit of a hallmark of this government in the same way as it has uh, of governments for the last couple of decades, and that we don't have really in any way that matters an independent foreign policy um you know we we just took the side of the wto of, of major corporations and pharmaceuticals of other big western powers like the us um and by and large we're uh doing the same in regards to uh ukraine um and russia's war uh in, in ukraine because just just this week we've sent a, a bunch of um arms supplies to the ukraine but we're not we're like, which is, you know, there are arguments about that. I'm not going to get into them. Um, but there are a, a range of other things that we could be doing from our position, um, such as better economic aid, um, taking more, taking more refugees, getting that uh, pipeline set up, or and and specifically pressuring other Western governments like the US and the UK to actively engage in diplomacy with Russia. So we can actually bring this war to an end. But yeah. instead, we've seen this kind of symbolic gesture um, of, of sending some uh, uh, body armor and, and helmets uh, to the Ukraine armed forces. Um, and it's just like saying, oh, look, this is us. We're part of the club. Um, and we're not going to try and uh, kind of ruffle any feathers. Yeah, that's right. So um... I think five million worth of non-lethal uh, military assistance has been announced for uh, from New Zealand uh, to Ukraine, and that was just uh, within this last week. And really interesting um, sort of position to take, where you know it's not lethal, so you know um, I think it's sort of pacifying, um, you know the the anti-war activists or something to say that we're actually not giving lethal aid but 
effectively, um, New Zealand is just uh, reiterating the Western position on this conflict. If you, you know, if New Zealand uh, at the beginning of, um, you know, Russia's action um, to invade um, um, Ukraine following NATO's you know, uh, actions in the last <laughs> decade. <laughs> I do want to make that very clear that that's what I think is at, at the root of this conflict. Um, but if you if you see the initial response of the government is, was, to, was to talk about the violation of sovereignty. So if the government had a principal stand on the violation of sovereignty, it needs to be speaking up about the other violations of sovereignty that are happening right now and um, where the, you know, the direct aggressor um, yeah. is their allies. Their allies are the direct aggressors. Like it was just a few weeks ago that France withdrew their army from Mali. You know, we're talking about real occupation uh, despite the end of the colonial period so many decades ago. Not that many decades the ago, end. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you look at, um, you know, the West's involvement in Africa, um, it was... Actually, a few decades after the Second World War that, um, you know, European nations withdrew to some extent from uh, from Africa. And and even after that, what do we how do we see, you know, the the Western interventions into uh, into Africa, into into um, West Asia, into Latin America? The, these are incursions into our sovereignty, like the sovereign. Uh, sovereignty of these nations. So if you if New Zealand was, you know, principled about their stand on um, upholding sovereignty, you know, they will have to uphold, um, you know, the sovereignty of number one, the Treaty of Waitangi <laughs> here. I don't think that that has been upheld, you know, no. the sovereignty of Maori people. Tinoranga uh, Tiratanga, I don't think that has been upheld through New Zealand's policies. So, you know, let's talk about what's at home, what are our issues over here, and also look at New Zealand's allies who are time and again uh, yeah. violating the sovereignty of nations. So it's not a consistent um, stand. It's simply repeating uh, the Western position again and again. So it, for me, it was very disappointing. And what made it even more disappointing is the fact that we have, um, you know, um, Nanaya Mahuta. I had great expectations mm -hmm. um, in Nanaya Mahuta. I thought there would be, a, you know, a distinct foreign policy coming from her. Um, I, I wish that she could have seen, um, you know, some of the positions of, um, for example, um, anti-colonial, anti-racist sort of organizations ac across the world, how they have contextualized this crisis, how yeah. they have seen uh, NATO's incursions, not only in Ukraine, but across the world. And this is seeing the repeated pattern over here. You know, I just had some hope that um, Nanaya Mahuta would distinguish herself through, um, you know, a, a, pol a foreign policy that's different from the previous mm -hmm. Um, but, but that looks, couldn't happen. Yeah, it looks like we're we're happy to toe the line for now. Um, yeah. And that, that goes for sanctions as well. And I think this is one of probably the most devastating things about the situation is alongside the fact that we, we don't really know how long this war is going to go on for. And as far as we can tell, uh, NATO and the US and other Western powers 
want this to be a war that and have been can be quoted on now to bleed Russia dry. Um, you know, they've actually said this in public at this point, uh, which kind of goes in the face of, you know, everyone who is pushing back on our own critiques of, of what the US was planning here. Um, and part of the way they're doing that is, just, is some of the most extensive and damaging sanctions on a nation that we have ever seen. Um, do you want to go into a bit of detail about how effective sanctions really are, Josephine? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, it was really interesting to see that New Zealand also, you know, went into the bandwagon of um, sanctions and sanctions are a form of warfare, in my view. Um, and if you look at what how the sanctions have impacted countries over uh, over the COVID pandemic, for example, um, Iran is under you know, sanctions from the United States um, and over the pandemic, um, they requested that the sanctions be listed, uh, lifted so that medical supplies can enter the country. But then the sanctions were reimposed and reimposed. And this, the impacts of economic sanctions are felt by the common people. It's not felt by the people in the leadership. And, you know, I lived in Zimbabwe and uh, um, over there, the impact of the Western economic sanctions, it's always overlooked. People say that Mugabe was corrupt and therefore, you know, um, uh, Zimbabwe collapsed. But actually, it was the impacts of sanctions from former colonizers um, that has kept um, Zimbabwe in poverty and greater economic decline for years. So across the world, you can see the impacts of, sa of sanctions. Look at, um, you know, the poverty in, uh, in North Korea, um, to me, in, from my analysis, to a great extent is because of um, Western, you know, uh, basically a continuation of, of Cold War isolation tactics and Cold War narratives and complete isolationism um, on the, and the, it's the common people that are impacted by uh, sanctions, but there's no solidarity for Russian peoples, Russian poor and working class people in Russia who are going to bear the brunt of this um, economic warfare that the United States, well, this is not the first time that the United States is, you know, imposing sanctions on Russia. USA has been hostile against them for, for you know, uh, from the Cold War and after. So where where is our sympathy for Russian people who are, you know, who are facing the worst onslaught of of, of yeah. this yeah. it's going to be disastrous like russia russia is huge um you know there are there are millions and millions and millions of people there who uh you know aren't going to be able to get uh medicine uh, we're going to see food shortages we're going to see starvation um and if anything economic sanctions of this type have the ability to strengthen the position of mm. an autocratic leader um yeah so putin like potentially comes out of this in a stronger political position you know if we're saying that he already has like this horrible uh death grip on the russian populace um you know that he's a he's a tyrant and all these other oligarchs that work with him um are you know manipulating uh the common people etc cetera, etc cetera. what do you think this is going to do you know, he can he can now point at the United States and say, "Look, they're they're our enemies, um, and it's their fault that this is happening." Um, but alongside that, you know, Russia is a big trading partner of a lot of uh, other other places, um, and I'm not I'm not convinced that some of this isn't about 
stopping uh, oil supply, medical supply, um, staples like food staples um, from getting to some of the countries that Russia continued to trade with despite US unilateral sanctions. Yeah, um, it, it's such an interesting situation that's unfolding now because um, it might ultimately lead to some major changes um, in, you know, uh, in the way we in global trade happens and so forth, because um, most countries across the world are currently reeling under inflation uh, problems and the uh, fuel prices are rising. You know, in India, it's rising like every week. Um, so a lot of countries do require the resources of, of Russia and they're looking for alternate ways to do it. Um, so it might be a self-defeating, de um, you know, a strategy for the West, like you said, to go ahead with this um, this sort of a, uh, a position. But also at the same time, when New Zealand, um, you know, uh, I, I saw Jacinda Ardern posted the sanction document, uh, you know, it, it's a apparently targeted sanctioning on um, on rich people. That's what the New Zealand government saying. But then if you think about the, uh, the other very influential, politically influential rich people, if you globally, um, the powerful people, the rich people are extremely polit politically influential, including in New Zealand, right? Like who gets to wine and dine with Jacinda Ardern and with um, Luxon and, you know, have a, their ears, um, access to them. It's not the common people, right? Mm -hmm. Within capitalist nations, uh, rich people have huge influence on politics. And um, United States is it's, it's, it's the best example of, of um, you know, basically having no boundary between uh, corporations <laughs> and government. Um, so where are the sanctions for the United States uh, oligarchs? Um, I don't see them. So that, you know, again, it speaks of huge uh, double standards and, you know, it, the way it has reflected in sport is unbelievable. If you are a football fan, um, you know that, um, uh, for example, currently the uh, the World Cup, FIFA World Cup uh, qualifiers are going on and Russia has been banned. I mean, how many wars have uh, United States and NATO precipitated just in the 21st century? I'm not talking about, you know, a long time. And all these sporting uh, agencies were supposed to be completely depolitical. Yeah. Nobody were able to talk about these things. Uh, we were not going to be involved in politics. That's you couldn't have flags of nations that you're supporting. Like your, your country would be fined. Um, you couldn't wear a, a shirt with a message on it. Uh, saying, I think you still can't like have a Palestinian flag in many stadiums. Yes. Um, but now you are allowed uh, in the specific case. In the specific case of Ukraine alone. So that's really, you know, it's shocking for us. Like, what about the lives of brown people who have, you know, who have been just um, killed and displaced in the millions uh, by um, Western uh, interventions into our sovereign sovereignty and our territories. And so it's like the double standard is so starkly visible to those of us who are aware of this. But, um, you know, the impact and the power of Western uh, media and narrative is so, so 
it's so powerful that people often just don't see it that way. But I, I really invite them, I invite everyone to just think about it. How come only Russian athletes are being banned uh, when right now United States is bombing so Somalia, right? Um, they are still involved in Syria. They are um, supporting um, uh, Israel, which is, you know, committing ethnic uh, ethnic cleansing in 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 Palestine for so many decades and supporting um, Saudi Arabia with you know during Trump Trump did and was like advertising this 900 billion dollar deal he had with the Saudis so uh, which they're using to commit genocide a near genocide like situation in Yemen so where how come we can't speak about these things I remember that uh, many um, you know uh, players were they faced a lot of backlash because they took uh, political positions. Like you can think about Colin Kaepernick, um, how mm -hmm. he faced backlash simply for, uh, you know, supporting the Black Lives Matter movement and um, saying that he's not happy with the way things are in his country. But suddenly now you're you're okay to, you know. And so there was this um, squash player. He's the number one in the world, I think, um, from Egypt. And so he was saying, now suddenly we can talk about politics in uh, in sport. So from now on, please remember that we are also allowed to speak about Palestine. And we must remember that the Palestinian uh, people have been struggling for decades. So he won the Optasia champ Championship at Wimbledon Club. And he said no one should accept any killings in the world or oppression and you know he's he finished his uh, uh, his victory speech by supporting the palestinian people so yeah. Really interesting to see these developments. I hope, you know, more people um, come to see the hypocrisy of the Western narrative on um, sovereignty and international law and human rights. Yeah, and I hope that more people, well, I hope everyone, um, including the people making the decisions, uh, choose like a path of peace here. Um, and also just remember that, you know, the Russian people aren't the Russian leadership. Like they, those are two, two distinct groups. And if you're saying that, uh, Putin is a is an autocrat, is an authoritarian. Uh, even more so, the case that you need to make a distinction between him and his coterie and the and the Russian populace. Um, and so, if if we are undertaking actions that are harming those people, whether if they're um, you know Russian immigrants in your countries, um, or if they're Russians in Russia who are who are facing these. Um, who, who will be facing these extreme conditions by these extreme economic sanctions, we need to be thinking of them as well when we make the decisions. We can't let the US uh, and the overwhelming Western narrative dictate the way that our sense of justice plays out uh, on the global stage because every time they're just going to, they're going to seed it towards their own oligarchs. Um, they're going to look at where the money is. They're going to look at their own geopolitical positioning and decide like Madeleine Albright uh, did all those years ago, that the deaths of 500,000 children is worth it. You know, that, that's a price we're willing to pay because they will, they will absolutely decide that. Yeah, really, I think it's an interesting, you know, point to um, touch upon because I think um, Madeleine Albright, she passed away this last week, didn't she? Um, 
we must look at her career and um, what the United States foreign policy establishment stands for. It doesn't stand for the interest of the people and the common people in the United States, nor does it stand for the common people in the West. It's in the interests of the capitalist class in the USA and in, um, in the other NATO countries. It does not represent the democratic interests of the people. So um, if you look at what, what's happening in the United States, they're cutting some of the public services so that they can put more money into the war. And this is not going to you know, solve the conflict. Only negotiations can uh, solve the conflict. Um, flooding Ukraine with uh, weapons is not going to solve the con conflict. And just imagine uh, common people taking arms and having to face a Russian uh, professional military. It's not going to be, you know, a peaceful outcome for anyone. So we need to think about what ways the, we can support peace and and in order to do that, we need to understand the context of within which this is happening and how NATO has violated their own promises again and again, moving further into, in, into the East and also meddling with the Ukrainian domestic politics, at least for a decade, uh, if not since the beginning of uh, Cold War. And, you know, some analysts say this is a proxy war between the United States and, um, and Russia. And the United States doesn't really care for the lives of Ukrainians. Um, it's 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 become you know the the venue of a proxy war between uh, two uh, powers. So yeah, we are in solidarity with the people, the common people caught in this war in Ukraine, as well as the common people um, in in Russia who are going to face the worst effects of economic sanctions as well. And I think that's a good place to leave it for this week of one of two hundred. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for joining us, uh, Justin. Good to have you on. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Kyle. It was uh, really great to talk to, to you about these um, recent events and political developments. If you've enjoyed listening to this, uh, give us a share, um, play us to your friends and family. Uh, jump on one of 200.nz where we have all our past episodes and articles. Uh, come along to the live stream uh, every fortnight on a Thursday at 8 p.m. NZT. I also want to give a shout out uh, this week to Manawatu People's Radio, who syndicate us on Monday nights at 11 p.m. Uh, so if you're listening uh, on the radio instead of on your podcast, hello, welcome. Um, glad to have you with us. That's been another week of One of 200. We'll catch you next time. Kakite kia Bye. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You hate nationalism You don't hate your